Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here and it's a special delight tonight to welcome John Ralston Saul for the 17th annual McCready Lecture. So after the talk, there will be a short Q&A, so get your questions ready. And then we have some of his books at the back, and he will sign them for you if you wish. I'd now like to invite Gerald McMaster, who is our Frederick S. Eaton Curator of Canadian Art, to introduce Mr. Saul. Madame Clarkson, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you, Jillian. Uh, it is my distinguished pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this evening, Mr. John Walston Soul. But first, let me say a few words about uh, the McCready Lecture. To honor the memory of the Reverend Philip G. McCready, a group of his friends, some of whom are here with us this evening, endowed the Philip G. McCready Annual Memorial Lecture on Canadian Art. Mr. McCready was born and educated in Montreal. He financed his education through the purchase and sale of antiquarian books, a pursuit that eventually led him to an appreciation of fine art. Uh, in 1952, he was posted to the Metropolitan United Church here in Toronto. When his son Alan established a framing gallery, it was only logical that Mr. McCready uh, that the scope of the business be enlarged to include the sale of Canadian art. As the business grew, Reverend McCready left the ministry and joined his son in partnership. Mr. McCready passed away in 1981. The McCready Memorial Lecture is an annual scholarly lecture on Canadian art presented in memory of Philip McCready. The fund was started by four of his friends, uh, those who wished to remain anonymous, uh, who solicited donations to create the lecture series. Dennis Reed was the first lecturer, and he spoke on the Group of Seven, a particular area of interest to Mr. McCready. I had the honor of being invited to speak at the McCready Lecture back in 1995. Our guest speaker this evening is Mr. John Ralston Saul. Uh, he is one of this country's most celebrated novelists and essayists. He has been awarded, among others, the Chilean Pablo Neruda Medal, Italy's Primario Letario Internationale, and the Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres de France. His books include Voltaire's Bastards, The Doubter's Companion, The Unconscious Civilization, and On Equilibrium. <coughs> Mr. Ralston Saul is former president of the Canadian PEN, but we're proud to announce that one week ago today, on October 21st, at the International Pen Assembly of Delegates of International Pen Meeting in Linz, Austria, he was elected as its international president. In so doing, he becomes the first Canadian to be elected president in the 88-year-old history of the organization. So we're very, very proud, John. Many of you know the existence and the presence of the Métis in Canada. But do you know when the first Métis came into being? Some people said nine months after the arrival of Europeans. 
Imagine my surprise when I picked up this book here, Mr. Ralston Saul's book, A Fair Country Telling Truths About Canada, in which the first line reads, We are a Métis civilization. After finishing his book, I said to my fellow Canadian curators, I think we need to invite him to deliver a lecture on his book because his ideas so closely resembled our thinking in the Canadian wing of the new gallery. And it is precisely his thinking that so expresses the McCready Lectures, uh, which is to select an eminent and outstanding speaker who is an authority in his or her field and whose lecture will make a major contribution to the study and interest of Canadian art. In his book, A Fair Country, Mr. Ralston Sol argues that Canada is a Métis nation, heavily influenced and shaped by Aboriginal ideas, egalitarianism, a proper balance between the individual and the group, and a penchant for negotiation over violence are all Aboriginal values that Canada has absorbed. He argues that it is critical that we recognize these aspects of Canada in order to rethink its future. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce John Ralston Salt. Thank you very much, Gerald. And I think Dennis Reed is somewhere here, and I want to acknowledge him. He was one of the first people who, when I wrote this book, I actually was convinced that there would be silence from the Aboriginal community, which would be perfectly fine, um, uh, given them who the book was written by, you know, uh, and that I would be um, slammed uh, by the non-Aboriginal community. And to my astonishment, it wasn't at all what happened. Uh, and one of the first people to come up to me and say, this is absolutely right, was Dennis Reed. And, um, and I thought, gosh, Dennis says that. Maybe I'm not an idiot. I don't know. It's sort of that kind of, you're not quite sure. And then uh, Gerald and I have had a whole series of conversations since. We knew each other already, but some wonderful conversations. And one of the outcomes of it is that I'm here doing this. And I have to say that this is a, um, I don't know how long this lecture is going to go on because I've never done a slideshow before. I, and I'm allergic to PowerPoint. This is not PowerPoint. It's a slideshow. Um, we could be here for days. Uh, <laughs> But I've always wanted to give this lecture, or at least for years I've wanted to give it. And uh, so I'm actually quite excited about being here with you tonight in uh, the new AGO. Uh, and I thought, you know, actually, Gerald has explained a lot of the ideas in the book very clearly. So I'm not going to say what I normally say uh, when I'm talking about these ideas. Instead of that, I'm going to try and talk about it almost entirely through the AGO, through the architecture organization and the way in which the pictures have been and sculptures have been organized in the AGO um, and of course the people who are responsible for that are largely here tonight and I felt that when this astonishing art gallery reopened that the reactions were extremely positive there's no question they were very very positive both about the architecture and about the use of the architecture but I felt that there was confusion in the enthusiasm, that people felt that something important had happened, but they weren't quite clear what it was. And they weren't clear because, in essence, they were trying to come at what was happening here through the old, linear, rational, European-derived views of how an art gallery works. And so, although they were thrilled by what they found, they didn't quite know what it was that they had found. 
And so in a sense, what I thought would be fun would be to talk about this. And um, what's interesting is, I will talk about the outside. You walk in, and the first thing you see is a very problematic uh, image, which is, uh, it's called a serpentine ramp, but uh, snake. And of course, in the Western tradition, the Western cultural literary art tradition, uh, to say nothing of religious tradition, the snake is the image of evil, and evil is, of course, the image of knowledge, right? You eat the, the apple, and the evil snake brings you consciousness, and therefore you have to be thrown out of Eden. And that the whole basis of Western civilization is that the more you know, the more evil you will become. And somehow we have to deny that, uh, but it's there because of the nature of the role of the snake and the role of, of knowledge and uh, the nervousness about consciousness. So you come into the AGO, and the first thing you're met with is the bloody snake. <laughs> and it's there, obviously, not as a statement of evil, unless I've misunderstood. Uh, and, of course, it is not linear, it is not rational, it is not uh, uh, classical, it's not neoclassical, it's not Bauhaus. It has nothing to do, this message has nothing to do with the Western European tradition of architecture and understanding. It is a spatial, non-linear statement of the snake as a positive, which I think Aboriginal people would be extremely comfortable with, and essentially European people would be at some conscious or unconscious level uncomfortable with. So there it is, and uh, you... Um, uh, walk along, and um, you can feel suddenly comfortable because, of course, there you find the next thing you see is this perfectly European neoclassical staircase, right? Sort of Fontainebleau done backwards kind of thing. But, of course, it's really Gary's joke against neoclassicism because the snake's behind you, and in front of you is another snake, another monster hanging right in front of you. And uh, you, I love this, uh, I don't know how many of you saw it, it was there until not long ago, this, the Kent Monkman installation, which is highly ironic as he is. I don't know if he's here tonight or not. But, uh, um, uh, and it was wonderful sitting there as a kind of statement of the meaning of that staircase. And the, the thing about the staircase, it's kind of an interesting thing, is that uh, you try to take pictures of it, and of course the picture, you know, the camera... You, you know, it takes a Bertinsky or somebody to try and force the camera to do what it doesn't want to do, but essentially the camera does have a tendency to reduce to a rational form. And so we all know that when we walk into that court, the walk, I guess it's still called the Walker Court, um, uh, the staircase is absolutely overwhelming. This python is about to drop on you and strangle you or enlighten you. Uh, but when you take a picture of it, it just looks like this thing in a big room. And I'm sure really, you know, if one took the time, there'd be a way of getting a photograph that gave one a sense of what that staircase feels like. But the point about the staircase is that it, what emotionally dominates is the non-rational, the spatial, the serpentine, the non-Western, the non-linear, the, non, the doubt-filled, uncertain, and the embracing of the spatial. It's kind of interesting when you start to think about it that way. And in between, these two snakes have got total control over uh, the poor little uh, joke of the uh, uh, neoclassical uh, staircase. Um, now, 
Now, Frank Gehry said all sorts of things, and of course he doesn't have to be a completely, uh, in complete conscious understanding of what he's doing. Most geniuses aren't. If they were, they wouldn't be geniuses. Right? It's one of the characteristics of genius. You're actually doing things you only half understand. But he said all sorts of things. One of them, you know, I approach each building as a sculptural object, a spatial container, a space with light and air, a response to context and appropriateness of feeling and spirit. It sounds like an almost direct quote from Big Bear or Joseph Brandt, or any other great Aboriginal thinker, um, or Douglas Cardinal, interestingly enough. And it, what's fascinating is, here you've got Frank Gehry, you know, brought up around the corner. Of course, he probably didn't know or consciously know any Aboriginal people. But, you know, it isn't all about conscious knowing. It's about uh, the atmosphere, the appropriateness of feeling and spirit, which you get out of a collective unconscious, which, being a genius, I think he sucked up. And it's very interesting that at this time we have Frank Gehry, even though he was rejected for most of his life by his own country. Um, we have Douglas Cardinal, who is also largely rejected by his own country in spite of the fact that he's built some of the most brilliant buildings in the country. I don't know if you've seen his church in Red Deer. Is it Red Deer? Yes, which is one of the most astonishing modern uh, uh, public buildings uh, built in the last 50 years anywhere in the world, to say nothing of his building in Ottawa and his building in Washington. And the fascinating thing is that, of course, as all of you do, uh, no rational, whether bureaucrat or not, person could actually destroy the great hall of his building in Ottawa, but they've done everything they can to destroy the rest of the interior by turning it into square boxes and with straight lines and deny the idea of the circle, of the serpent, of the inclusiveness, of the meaning of his architecture. And indeed, it was so upsetting to the most rational and neoliberal and neoclassical country in the world, the United States, it was so upsetting to them that they had to get rid of him from the project of the museum in Washington, which he was doing. And as soon as they got rid of him, they filled that museum with a totally Washington uh, uh, neoclassical betrayal of the meaning of what Douglas Cardinal was doing there. But of course, you, know, you don't have to be Aboriginal to do this, you know, witness uh, 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 the architect of this building, but also Raymond Moriana. You know, where does that come from? You look at the War Museum, and I was just reading a book about it today, and you look at this, and, and you read his descriptions of it, and how he says that he was influenced by the landscape and by the landscape scarred by war. In other words, the landscape, which on the Ottawa River is totally out of control. I mean, you, it is actually a, a wild, in the European sense, a wild place, and uh, particularly where the, that museum is placed. And of course... It is, it's very interesting when you look at the group of seven, how many of them were war artists and how important it was that the, their experience with the scarred earth, the uncontrolled scarred earth of the First World War was married with the, their understanding, their breakthrough to understanding the uncontrollable, uh, wild, dangerous, in a sense, landscape of Canada which came through in their paintings. And they're actually paintings where you can take one of the First World War paintings and some of the paintings at Georgian Bay and almost interchange them. 
because what it's really about is an understanding of nature in a new way, in a, in, in a sense that nature is not a background. Nature is something which is out of control and must be out of control and will be out of control and has to be understood to be under of control for a great artist to make something uh, of, it, of it. As for the ROM, I've, I've never known why they call it the crystal. What it really looks like, really, is a Lorne Harris painting of a, an Arctic mountain or an iceberg. And when you think about it in those terms, it actually makes a great sense. And so what I'm actually saying here is that very, very slowly, Canada is moving towards the kind of architecture that looks like us, that actually is not colonial architecture, is not imitative architecture, is not neoclassical or Victorian romanticism. I mean, it is one of the awful failures of Toronto that having filled the city with I'm trying to think of a not too rude a term, the appalling uh, late Victorianism of Belfast, uh, we then have gone on in the last 25 years through promoters to fill the city even more with facades which are third-rate imitations of Belfast Victorianism and behind that put industrial box buildings. So it's a lie on the front and it's a lie behind and it's a complete lie in terms of what would be real architecture for this city. This is true for this city. The AGO is a very good attempt at being true for this city. The War Museum, the Museum of Civilization, they are true for this country. And I think it's very exciting to think that we're actually slowly finding our way down another road, even though we don't have the language. So let me just... Um, Take us, we go upstairs, which you've all done, and you turn to the right, and there's a shot. We went around, Gerald and I, with a wonderful photographer and took all these photographs two days ago and, and panicked, in a panicked way. Um, it was all put together by uh, uh, Thomas and Fraser, who work with us and who are wonderful. And so this is just your shot looking into the Inuit gallery, right? And then you start to see uh, uh, Jutai uh, Tunu's um, uh, sculpture, and you know, you just go around it and you see this, and then you see uh, uh, Isaki Etid Louis' uh, sculpture, you know, and you look at this, right? And then you're look, this is from the exhibit that was there before the flat bird by Miriam uh, Kuyuk, and I think that's a Sedna probably or a sea monster by David Rubin, and there's, of course, a wonderful Judas uh, uh, Luluk, who's really, I think, one of the greatest. Um, that was there in the previous gallery. And then you walk on a little Incidentally, um, uh, Adrian and I came here uh, when, when that show was on, and we had Bernard Schlink with us, the great German writer, you know, the, the reader. I don't know if you read the book or saw the film. We couldn't get him out of that room. He was so overwhelmed by the force of these sculptures. And you go into the next room, and there's some fantastic Aborigine Australian stuff. Or, uh, or, and then you turn to the left, and of course there's the Murray Frum Gallery with all those astonishing African and Pacific uh, objects. And you come back out into the main corridor, and straight ahead of you is uh, the European uh, result of having been inspired by what you've just walked through. You know, the, the, the early 20th century... Uh, attempt by Europeans to break out of the linear rational 500 year prison which had brought them to the perfection of the image 
and after they'd got to the perfection of the image. They're trying desperately to get away from it. And they didn't know how to do it because they were caught in a civilization, Western civilization, which denied the possibility of the snake, of the spatial, of the uncertain, of the uncontrollable. So they actually had to reach outside to find those inspirations, some of which were West Coast, uh, Canada and the United States, and many of which were Africa or uh, Oceanic. And so there's that, and you know, there they are, and you walk through them, and you come around the corner, and there's Henry Moore. Now, here's the point. In this art gallery, before it was redone, you went on your knees to Henry Moore, who is a great sculptor. And it's fabulous that we've got this sculpture. But you, they're the great man, the great European sculptor who had given us his sculpture and how fabulous it was for Toronto, all of which is true, right? But, of course, it was all in worship to Europe, in worship to European modernism from the colony. Now, the only way, really, to get to Henry Moore is through the Inuit and the Aborigines and the Africans. And by the time you get to Henry Moore, you say, of course. What else would he do? I mean, of course he's a genius. I'm not criticizing him in any way. But you suddenly realize that he is an outcome of what you've just gone through. That Judas, in my opinion, was as great an artist as Henry Moore. And in fact, what was fascinating was to watch Bernard Schlink, one of the great intellectuals of our time, that really his emotional and intellectual attention was held by the Judas sculpture and a couple of others. And when he got to the Henry Moore, he said, of course. As opposed to, oh, now we've got to the stuff. You know. So you actually see the art in a completely different way because it's been organized in this way. So uh, then um, you go on and... Uh, uh, also, incidentally, I've, I've been told that Henry Moore had an Inuit collection. I don't know when he got it. I don't know what effect it had. But it's just interesting to know that he had it. And I'm going to come back to that issue in a minute. And there it is. And, but actually, as soon as you get into the gallery, you look through the other side, and what do you see? Right? You see something which indicates a continuation of this argument which began in the Inuit gallery, in the Aborigine gallery, and the, and the From gallery. And, of course, what you're looking at is the Arte Pauvre, uh, uh, art of uh, Giuseppe Pannoni. Now, this is wonderful stuff, right? But at the same time, it's absolutely fascinating because, of course, the word, I mean, it can be interpreted many ways, but it is out, but, but you're, you're looking at the struggle of Western civilization here. In spite of that breakout in the early 20th century, they still feel imprisoned. And so in the 1960s, here is this desperate attempt to scrape away, you know, Michelangelo, to scrape away everything and to get back to what they think of as basics. But the word chosen is a word which can be interpreted as poverty or simplicity or basics. So in other words, there's still completely, no matter, man's a very good artist, a fabulous artist, but he's still completely locked up in the European idea of nature as an antithesis to art. And therefore, it is presented as a kind of revolutionary statement of anti-art in the traditional European rational sense of art. Am I making sense here? So in a kind of way, it's romantic. It's uh, looking down. uh, In a way, in order to get at an attack on the tradition of art in the West, West, he has to actually get to a sense where he says, no, no, we're going to do poor things. We're going to do logs. Right? 
And of course, in that sense, it's a very uncivilized approach, which of course he would be very proud of. Right? That's the whole idea, is to be uncivilized. And in that sense, completely missing the point, because he's coming at the trees before their myth, before they are art, in order to try to escape the rational tradition. Now, the interesting thing is that all of this is happening at about the same time that the revival of West Coast First Nations art is taking place with Bill Reed and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, in that West Coast revival, which is happening at exactly the same time, of course, nobody describes nature as poor or simple or basic. You describe it as the very source and richness of the place of which you are part. And in a sense, nature, myth, and art are all integrated into one. And I mean, in fact, several years ago, I looked at this wonderful log, because it is wonderful. These are not criticisms. These are, you know, I'm just trying to place us vis-a-vis that and this other tradition which we do not belong to. Of course, there's all sorts of European influences here. But essentially, we don't belong to that tradition. That's what I'm saying. So I was looking at this log, and of course, what immediately came into my mind was a couple of years ago, and Adrian and I were in uh, Old Mass at Haida Gwaii. Now, how many of you have been to Haida Gwaii? One? Two? Anybody else? Three. Well, it's too bad because you... How many of you have been to Europe? <laughs> how many of you have been to the Arctic? You're an above-average crowd. Um, you know, Haida Gwaii is possibly the most magical, astonishing continent in the world because it is a continent of its own. But that's okay, you've been to Paris, you know. <laughs> but actually, Haida Gwaii is something that you will find nowhere else in the world. It's an astonishing place. Anyway, we were in Old Masset up in north of uh, Haida Gwaii with Jim Hart, who is the uh, um, uh, hereditary chief, uh, one of the hereditary chiefs. He's an Eden Shaw, which will ring a bell to you. Uh, great, great whatever of, of Charles Eden Shaw. Um, and uh, he's a very important artist, one of the very important artists in, uh, in Canada, in the West Coast. And he was at the beginning of carving uh, a very large totem pole, uh, which, of course, is done as a community effort. And so Adrian and I both took part in helping carve, which is actually a hell of a lot of work, and we didn't do very much, so we couldn't ruin anything. Um, but, you know, we took a couple of pieces out. And, of course, in that tradition particularly in, on the coast of British Columbia, uh, the assumption is that everybody is an artist, which doesn't mean everybody's a good artist. It isn't an egalitarian argument of everybody's the same. It's that everybody is capable of taking part in art. And everybody knows that if they go and help Jim Hart, Edenshaw, carve a totem pole, it's not that they're as good an artist as Jim Hart. He's the great artist. But they're part of it. So there is that sense of the unity of the culture. And, you know, people say, well, maybe I'll take a couple of years and carve. Why not? You know, maybe I'll stop selling insurance and carve. Does it mean that I'm a great carver? No, but actually it is part of being a human being to believe that you're capable, in some sense, of being part of art and uh, culture, culture. So it's an inclusive idea of civilization grouped within the concept of creativity, imagination, and art, in which, nevertheless, there is an understanding that some people are masters. But that's okay. Just because you're not a master doesn't mean you're not good. It's not that European pyramidal thing of who's the best. You just know that there's somebody who's the best. But you're part of it. You're involved in it. And you should be involved in it. 
So in a way, what I'm trying to say here is that I think that an enormous part of the images that we're producing in this country, whether they're sculptural or architectural or art, are absolutely right for who we are. And this is not nationalism. This is not us aside from everybody else. But every place is specific and therefore has something specific about it within the local, the national, and the international. But we're doing very well on that front, but we're doing very badly at explaining what we're doing, at explaining why we do what we do, at explaining the meaning of uh, what we're doing. Um, and the, uh, uh, so we've got the images in right and have been getting them right for a very long time and the words wrong. And we're struggling for the language to help us escape from this kind of prison that we've got ourselves into. So you look down the hall and you see um, uh, there's a totem pole done uh, in the poor art uh, um, in this tradition, right? And it's wonderful. I mean, this is, this is a fabulous use of this architecture and it's very, very exciting and it's wonderful. Um, there it is, you know, the totem pole and it's an attempt at it, but as a poverty, you know, poor box art or whatever you want to call it. Now, you know, you wander into the uh, different parts of the gallery and there's a Charlie Edenshaw uh, totem pole. It's actually a small one, uh, probably done for, uh, for non-Aboriginals um, in the Haida Gwaii in 1885. Uh, and of course, what are, as soon as you... We took this photograph and of course it's a true photograph because totem poles, you look up at them. So in fact, that you see the light that way. You know, you're meant to look up into the light. And in a way, what immediately, um, uh, Gerald and I immediately said, well, this is, of course, all about, you know, the raven uh, freeing the light. I don't know how many of you know the story about how the light is, you know, everybody has creation myths. And our creation myth is not European. Our creation myth is, there are a number of them, but one of them is the story of how this old man, who I think his wife has died, and he's so sad that he puts the stars and the, the, the moon and the sun in boxes, you know, those big boxes that West Coast uh, First Nations have, and he keeps his daughter there serving him, and the raven, who, the trickster, uh, uh, turns himself, transforms himself into a kind of prince, comes and seduces her, moves into the house, and then one night takes all the lids off the boxes and releases the light, thereby creating today. Now, do you find that less attractive or more attractive than the world being created in seven days. I actually think that the ironic humor of Canada uh, goes much better with the raven than it does with the Old Testament, but that's just a personal opinion. I'm much more comfortable um, with that. Um, and what, of course, is the raven doing? He's freeing the light. He's freeing knowledge. He's freeing the serpent. He's arranging the possibility of a relationship between the sky and the land and the objects and people uh, between them. And so you go on, you walk on a little bit, and there's an Armand Vaillancourt, to modern totem pole, uh, 1957, fabulous piece of modern art. But of course, you know, it's modern in the same sense that um, uh, Charles Edenshaw was modern or that any of these things are modern. I can't think of anything more modern than the way poles are done. But then you sort of turn around, and just there, uh, right behind on the left, 
There's an Emily Carr, and of course, it's just, what is it? It's trees, it's totem poles, it's looking up, looking up into the light. Even the broken trees are like attempts at poles moving up towards the magical light. And as always, there's that mystical, the beginning of that mystical hole in the middle of the painting, which uh, she was so remarkable at doing. And then next to it is a Varley called Liberation. Guess what? Another totem pole, same thing, looking up at the light. Uh, quite astonishing, all about the relationship between the sky and earth and the meaning of the objects. Uh, there's the top of it, right? And there's, of course, the, you know, the Indian church, Emily Carr. And again, it's the same thing, the, the, the totem pole, the image going up. And there you've got Archibald Brown, Moonrise, 1898. Now, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad painting. I mean, if, this, if I could say it was a really bad painting and convince the Art Gallery of Ontario to give it to me, that would be great. You know, it's a, it's a good painting. But essentially, this is a painting, this is a European painting. This is static, without movement, without any understanding. It actually says moon rising, but you see, the moon is decor in the background. There's none of what I've just been showing you. This is a classic European idea that landscape is over there in front of you. It's a background, and it doesn't move. And the, the moon is sort of somewhere in there. It's, you know, getting on its way towards German romanticism in a funny kind of way, but it still has, it's, it's static. It's sedentary, as befits a civilization, which is sedentary, which is to say Western uh, civilization. Now you turn around, and there's, you know, uh, the real thing. Movement, movement. Everything in Canada is about movement. The whole tradition of art and culture in this country is about constant, unstoppable, uncontrollable movement. And if you look at our art, you'll see that it's about movement versus static, sedentary uh, art coming out of Europe, which is about control. Then there, of course, um, is a Rodney Graham with a tree upside down. And even upside down, it's the same theme. Right? You can see that astonish, pushing, that astonishing force. Alex Colville, exactly the same thing again. Uh, Mary Pratt, it's the same thing. Exactly, uh, exactly the same thing, that kind of astonishing reaching up, even if it's as violent uh, as this is. It's all in the same room. Now, this is uh, uh, Tiller Richard Lucas. It's not in this collection, but it's a fabulous series of tree paintings he did, exactly in the same uh, tradition. And then if you if you go up the fifth floor, you'll find uh, Mark Lewis's uh, tree video. Which, uh, how many of you have seen that? I don't know. People must have seen it. Some people have seen it. And again, it's that same theme. So something is happening, and it's very interesting. It's very specific, and it is not a Western, European, U.S. approach towards the role of art in the way in which people understand how they are in uh, a place. So the point of everything that I'm saying so far is that this is all about place. It's about people in the place. It's about the meaning of the people being in the place. It's about the meaning of the objects in the place. It's about the relationship between the sky and the earth. Now, we go back to the top of the stairs and we turn left into the Canadian collection. But before we do that, I just want to make a, a kind of very clear statement of what I'm saying here. The virtual totality of the academic and scholarly work on the group of seven places them in the European tradition as post-impressionists, right? The group of seven are not post-impressionists in any way, shape, or form. Were they uh, influenced? Uh, of course. 
Every artist is influenced, and they're influenced by anything they get their hands on. That doesn't mean they're derivative. It's only a colonial, utilitarian, linear approach towards understanding art, which would lead one to say, well, just because there are some signs of you know, impressionism in there and then post-impressionism, therefore, it follows that the group of seven is derivative of a European school, which is essentially a romantic urban school going out into parks and things like that. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that's their reality. Not going out into the wilderness. Not going out into nature. Going out into parks. So the group of seven has elements of post-impressionism. We know it has elements of Sweden and Finland and Norway. And that's the north. And that makes a lot more sense uh, because those things all fit together. Um, uh, because all art is indeed uh, influenced. But you know, the essential point, and this is one of the problems that we're finding increasingly in our art schools, and art schools everywhere in the world, is they're teaching everything except art. In other words, they're teaching uh, uh, influences, they're teaching technical, uh, and they're in a sense missing that art is not about style. It's a bit like writing schools. You know, writing is not about style. If you can't do style, you shouldn't be writing. Writing is about content, and art is about meaning, it's about impact, it's about perception, it's about relationship to place, it's about relationship in time, it's about relationship over time. And if you take it that way, you come up with something uh, completely uh, different. Emily Carr uh, was clearly influenced by various people in various places, but she was such a stubborn lady that she resisted the temptations to produce art first that was in the constable tradition, but then with, that was in the European traditions, that she, modern traditions that she saw in England and France. Sure, she took a couple of things, just so they were taking a couple of things from Japan. Nobody says that the people who took a, that Whistler is a Japanese derivative artist, right? So why would we say that the Group of Seven are a European derivative series of artists? That's a sign of a colonial mind to believe that it can't, if it can't be explained in colonial terms. It can't be good. And the real point about it is that the group of seven and Emily Carr and others were desperately looking for the colors, the images, the languages of image that were appropriate to this place, just as other artists do in other places. And they were doing this in a land, and this is the second error which is made, which is always this sense that that early Canadian modern art, which was the big breakthrough, was something about those painters leaving the city and going out into the empty land, the empty wild land, you know, while we stayed in the city with stiff collars and dotted up figures and numbers and did court cases and so on. The land wasn't empty. The land was full and had always been full. It had always been full of itself, of culture, of civilization, of interpretations. Just remember, in 1600, when people like me arrived here, there were two million Aboriginals and there were a handful of poverty-stricken, dirty, uneducated, lost Europeans who would have been dead within weeks or months had it not been for the fact that they were adopted by the First Nations. Remember that that went on for two and a half centuries, that Aboriginals were the dominant players in this country, approximately, depends on where you were, from 1600 to 1850, approximately. You know, you could say, well, it was... It, it, the, the power changed earlier in southern Ontario and southern Quebec. Yeah, it changed in about 1820. You know, because the strategy, the official military strategy of Canada until about 1820 was that you couldn't hold this land whether you were French, 
or English or Canadian, you couldn't hold it unless the Aboriginals held it for you militarily. And that strategy was formally dropped in about 1820. But of course, as you moved north, and I've looked at the actual, uh, very specifically, you only have to move up, you know, into halfway up Georgian Bay, and suddenly you're in a whole other world where the Aboriginals are still dominant in the 1850s and 60s. And of course, remain dominant in places like the Arctic until 1950 or 60, at which point they had the good fortune of having the advantage of the brilliant creativity of people like me for about 50 years. Um, unfortunately, it didn't go on much longer, so they managed to escape from that and get back in control again. Right. So, you know, what we're talking about is a very important presence which has an enormous amount to do, not simply with what Aboriginal people were doing and are doing, but had to do with what the immigrants would do when they came here because they lived, not just for technical and utilitarian reasons, but they lived inside the philosophy the social and cultural philosophies of Aboriginal people, which were far more dominant than those coming from Europe. Of course, they wrote home the way one does, you know, sire, I am conquering the savages. And then you, you left your little crummy wood shack and went out and said, chief, is there anything you could do to help me? And then you went back and said, sire, I have just got the savages doing exactly what I want. And they went back and said, chief, could, you know, I need 200 men, you know. So you really have to realize that by relying on a written memory, we're actually relying on a profoundly colonial memory of what happened here. And we're only gradually getting back to the oral memory, which was actually what was shared between the people here and the people uh, who came here. So that idea of memory is incredibly important. Memory is about actuality. David Maloof, the great Australian a writer who came and gave one of the uh, uh, Team Baldwin lectures, wrote, uh, he's a novelist, but he did the, uh, the Boyer lectures, which were called The Spirit of Play. It was about how Australia became a real place. And of course, the thing about Australia is there is nothing in Australia, basically, uh, that you can find in Europe or vice versa. So they had one hell of a time in the beginning because painters and writers had no colors, no images, and no words to describe what was in front of them. And so it actually took a long time for them to actually name all those animals and plants. And since they were in the business of killing uh, aboriginals, uh, they weren't really taking a lot of words from them, unlike New Zealand and to a great extent in Canada. So they actually had to invent every word to name every bloody tree and plant and animal because they didn't exist in the West. And eventually they got to the point where they had great art and uh, great writing. It was both easier and more dangerous here because there were things that were somewhat similar which led us to believe that for a long time and, in, and, and continue to lead us to believe to some extent that we could talk and act and paint in a European way whereas in fact the reality here is profoundly different. So the confusion is uh, greater uh, here. And so it's led us, in a way, I think, to be more prisoners of the intellectually, the rationally based intellectual structures of European ideas of literature and art and philosophy. And of course, what's presented as a you know, history of art, examination of art, examination of philosophy or literature is always presented as being neutral because, of course, everything done in England coming out of the United States and England is completely disinterested. 
you're not laughing. Uh, this is a problem if you're not laughing. You know. And of course, it's completely neutral. And if Immanuel Kant said that this is a good basis upon which we can analyze how things are going, or if Rousseau said this about nature, well, we can analyze that as a basis point from which we can move. Really? Surely what they're talking about, brilliant though it is, is actually a point of view, not a neutral, disinterested uh, position. And uh, in fact, much of what we're using as language to look at our art is all about a predetermined center, which has certain assumptions about the importance of dates, the order in which things happen, which are frankly irrelevant, and which have very, very little to do with the reality of where uh, we are today. So what actually happened at the AGO over the last couple of years is a revolution. It is a fantastic intellectual and visual uh, revolution, even if we're not yet describing it that way, but we should be. And it was done by Gerald McMaster and Georgiana Uliaric, and of course Dennis Reed was central to what happened. And we should see this as an adventure, as a revolution. We should talk about it as a deep, deep change in direction, in interpretation of what we do here and what makes what we do here interesting. So, I mean, just so you understand a little bit of what I'm, what I'm actually saying, um, place is deeply important, no matter what kind of art you're talking about, whether it's abstract, classical, whatever it is. Place is always profoundly important. And here we are in a place which is place to an extent which perhaps only Russia could claim to be the equal. And... And yet, when we actually look at the language which we use to talk about nature here, it's virtually all derivative of 18th and 19th century European and U.S. Romantic language. So you actually look at what they teach in departments of philosophy and so on, and, and you get to nature, and you so push your button, and nature, and up comes Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and nature, right? Well, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's idea of nature was, you know, he has lunch in this lovely little chateau in the mountains with his mistress or not, uh, depending on what happened in private, and after lunch walks out into the perfectly planted garden with a servant behind to pick up stuff and writes about nature, <laughs> looking at the mountains over there. Or Walden, you know, Thoreau. I mean, it's all, it's not surprising. The U.S. is a static, sedentary, worshipping, European-modeled nation-state. It's not a criticism. It is the last great European nation-state. Europeans have given up on being European, right, since 1945. They killed 100 million of their own people in less than a half a century and decided that really that European model just wasn't working out, You're, you know, the monolithic nation-state. So they're trying something else. You know, the, the, the European Union is essentially going back to the pre-enlightenment, the pre-rational period, to the Erasmusian humanist experiment of the continent in which there are multiple civilizations with multiple personalities allowed to each person. A very interesting project. But intellectually, they're still stuck in, of course, the Enlightenment and rationality and nationalism and so on, as is uh, the United States. And there you have Thoreau, you know, this idea of nature. You know, I left my, I can't remember, I could quote, I used to be able to quote, you know, I left my farmhouse and I walked down the lane and there were many grapes on the bowers this autumn and I picked grapes in my basket. This is not our nature. <laughs> this is Rousseau. This is 19th century European romanticism. It is static and it is sedentary and it's a goodwill. I'm not criticizing it. It's a lovely thing. And if the, the, you know, the mosquitoes are gone and things, it's a really lovely, lovely thing. 
So the central point that I'm uh, making is that there is a profound difference between the Western rational linear pyramidal tradition of society and its relationship to nature on the one hand and on the other hand the spatial, circular, inclusive idea of place which is in effect what our art is about at its very best. Of course, the rational is confusing because I've I've already mentioned it's so destructive of creativity that it has to keep breaking itself. So the history of Western art is filled with, you know, moving towards the perfection of an image and then an explosion to break it and then another move towards some sort of mechanical stuff and then another explosion. So constant revolutions, which are revolutions within the rational assumption of the possibility of perfection and sedentary life, and static and linear. And that's why it's so important for the, to keep breaking it in a brilliant ways. Brilliant. I mean, you know, Picasso, Brock, I mean, the whole thing. Fabulous stuff. But what they're trying to do is escape from the prison in which they are. All civilizations are in some kind of prison or some kind of circumstance. They have been cut off from the spatial, the really profound relationship from, to the spatial, for so long that they can't remember what it's like to be in the spatial. And certainly that's been true for at least five to six hundred years. And it's certainly it's been true since the perfection of the image um, uh, during, uh, the, the, uh, in, in that period. So uh, that's why they had to turn outside of the West in the early 20th century and look for serious influences that would allow them to escape, to do something else, or they had to become ironic sarcastic, dramatic, and that's one of the part of the surrealistic, some of the stuff that I love the most. Um, but it confuses us. If we think we're directly part of that, it confuses us about the meaning of our objects and our images and our place and what it is that we're doing. And it makes it very difficult for us to be comfortable with the idea that art is about the meaning of the place. So that even though the Group of Seven is a Toronto art movement, this city is still deeply uncomfortable with the idea that its most important revolutionary art movement is about uncontrolled wilderness, which seems to be somewhat beneath us in our condominiums and our cappuccino shops. Surely we're better than wilderness. Yes, it's great. It's iconic. People love it, i.e., I'm not going to admit I love it, right? Because it's wilderness, you know, and it's empty, which, of course, it never was. Uh, and it doesn't have civilization, which, of course, it was always filled with. Uh, but it, in a way, one of the things that holds Toronto back is its incapacity to accept that it is actually the heart of a revolution in art, which changed the way in which this country, people in this place, would see themselves. And that that wilderness is real about this city. And the day that the people of this city understand that, I think the city will leap forward even faster than it is um, going uh, today. The rational tradition looks, as I said, at objects, at, at, at nature, as a background. Italian as well. It's there, we're, the human is always above, outside, looking at things. A genius can manage to get them back inside. But the assumption at the base is that the human is above and outside. And I just want to, let's just be very, very specific. You go and you look at a Van Gogh iris. You say, modern, fabulous, revolutionary for its time, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. It's an iris. 
You look at an olive branch. Isn't that so revolutionary? Isn't that astonishing? And, you know, an almond branch in flower. Uh, you look at consequences. Look at that incredible, you know, scenery. It's so modern. It's so sophisticated, you know. You look at water lilies, floaties. Water lilies, so sophisticated, so high civilization. And then uh, you turn around and you look at rocks, uncontrolled trees, burnt land, and you're embarrassed. You say, well, that's not high culture. So what is actually the difference between a pine tree and an iris from a civilizational point of view, to be extremely precise? Why is this iris considered to be the subject of great art, not simply great art, the subject of great art, whereas you know, a bent pine tree is iconic, but not really considered to be the basis for art of an international and great thing. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the iris is an argument of a European-US rational linear theory of what civilization's about. That's why. And what is an iris? What is an, an almond branch? What is a waterly? I can tell you what they are. They're romantic, nature, uh, sedentary, static. They're, you're looking at them. You're not in them. It's completely the opposite of the nature of place and objects here. And if when we, we are, in effect, comfortable with where we are and uh, what we are, but we pretend that we're not because the language doesn't allow us to be comfortable, the language which we allow to be put upon us that, you know, this is post-impressionist or there's a lot of pointillism in there or whatever. Or there are no people. Well, there are no people in those water lily paintings. There are no painting people in those, in those constable scenes. Nobody says, well, those aren't good art because there's no people in them. And then you get to Cannes, people, people say, well, there are no people in there. It's just wilderness. And so in a way it holds us back from understanding what we're doing now in our postmodern or whatever you want to call it. So there's a real need to actually break with the language, break with the intellectual basis which we're using to analyze uh, what we're doing. Because what we're doing is actually linked to another view of an eternal idea of the relationship of people to place. So... Um, the problem, again, is tied to an obsession with the idea of perfection, of control of the image, or explosion of the controlled image, the removal of doubt, the need to break perfection and certainty. Uh, sedentaryism, revolution against being sedentary. Uh, and there we are on the other side with our non-rational civilization based on constant movement, out of control, and we are in it. We are not looking at it from the outside, even when we're in downtown uh, Toronto. And I, just, uh, just so I show you this, how far this goes, it's very interesting that basically all modern communications theory, you know, all the stuff, modern communications theory in the world, all comes out of work done by um, uh, uh, Harold Innes of Toronto, the University of Toronto, who did an enormous study on the fur trade and in that way came to understand the nature of communications in Aboriginal society. And out of that, he wrote The Bias of Communications, which is virtually unreadable, but nevertheless brilliant. 
And uh, out of that came Marshall McLuhan, as Marshall McLuhan himself said. And parallel to that were, of course, Glenn Gould and Northrop Fry with their ideas of archetypes and movement and circles and integration. So the whole global idea of modern communications comes out of this city, out of the Toronto School of Philosophy, as I would call it, with those four people at the center of it. And that's all about an idea of communications in an uncontrolled, non-sedentary, constant movement situation. Once you sort of say that, you say, well, that's kind of interesting, maybe. Maybe irises aren't so important. You know, you have to leap in order to see how you can look at these differently. So you go back to the top of the stairs, and you turn left, and you find yourself faced by uh, uh, hanging, an organization which is based first on memory, and then on myth, and then on power. And as you walk in, you are reminded of the fact, if some of you went there, that in 1984 in the MoMA in New York, there was a show that was called something like Primitivism, Listen to the word, right? We're back with poverty art, primitivism, and modern art, which was, of course, that uh, there was some influence, perhaps, on people like Picasso from those things in Africa and elsewhere. And that show, I don't know if any of you saw it, caused an enormous scandal in the academic and journalistic world that how could one possibly say that those European geniuses had been more than in a superficial way inspired by this stuff coming from outside of the Western tradition. Go back and read about that. It was an astonishing European protectionist reaction to what was reality, because there were the photographs of Picasso standing with an African sculpture, painting a painting which looked awfully like the African sculpture. And they hated it. They just absolutely felt um, denigrated and uncertain by what uh, they were seeing. And so in a way, what we do has to be, and I think is increasingly and interestingly uh, very uh, different because we're gradually putting the Aboriginal idea and the non-Aboriginal idea together. We're gradually removing the Aboriginal idea, our Aboriginal idea of, art as of Aboriginal art as anthropology. We're trashing that at last and beginning to realize that, accept that Aboriginal art is art in the grandest and fullest sense of the word, that it is not for art's sake, art for art's sake, but is art in the full sense of the cultural uh, creative uh, object. And this whole movement uh, in modern galleries started in Ottawa in the National Gallery when they started putting uh, Aboriginal, great Aboriginal art objects or social objects in each of the galleries for the proper time sequences. And uh, Pierre Tiberge, I think, started that, and, and Char uh, Charlie um, Hill. Hill. And uh, which was a great start. But of course, the actual beginning of it was the 1848 Toronto City Hall show put on by Paul Kane, in which his paintings were hung with all the objects which he'd collected. Now, one can look at this cynically and say it was romantic, but actually it was really interesting that he thought of putting these two things together. 1848 and then 1927, 1928, and then five or six years ago in Ottawa, and now the idea has really, one could say, been fulfilled. So here we are, turning left at the top of the stairs, and in memory, and you know, you see all those uh, arrowheads, and you suddenly begin to see them as spatial objects. Of course, there's a utilitarian side to them. They remind you of the, where they come from. They remind you of what they're used for. And I'm going to end the lecture on what they're used for. But here they are hung in a way which shows that they are an art object, not simply a social object um, in and of uh, themselves. Uh, 
and you suddenly realize, well, all art is art and anthropology. If it's only one thing, then it's actually irrelevant. And then you move on into mythology. And of course, what you have to carry with you is this idea that mythology is reality, that mythology is stronger than facts, that mythology is the great strength of the spatial tradition. It overwhelms facts. The most important decision made by the Supreme Court of Canada in uh, 1997 was Delgamut, and it was a decision in which the Supreme Court, in a decision written by the head of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice, actually given a choice between a written Ottawa treaty with written proof, evidence, and oral memory from a First Nations group that the Chief Justice in the court overwhelmingly decided that the oral memory, the spatial memory, was far more accurate than the written proof. Which is very, you know, this is a very revolutionary thing about this country. And when you think if the Supreme Court can do it, we ought to be able to do something as interesting in our art schools, which we're not. We're not teaching in that as interesting a way as our Supreme Court is interpreting the nature of the country with decisions like Delgamut and Guerin and Williams and so on. Um, so uh, here you walk into the central part of it, and there you see some First Nations objects, and you see, of course, Tom Thompson's uh, iconic painting. So uh, uh, what you have here is uh, Anishinaabe uh, from the Great Lakes drawstring pouch with a thunderbird. And the thunderbird, of course, is the force of good, the benevolent. And then next to it, you have uh, an Odawa Great Lakes uh, pouch. And the figure here is called Misha Pishu, which is the underwater cougar who has horns uh, and has a long tail. And the purpose of long tail is to stir up water and create storms. You know, it's as good a story as Neptune, right? And it's ours. It's our story here. Uh, it's our myth as opposed to one which is imported from elsewhere. And then right next to it, of course, there's the Tom Thompson West Wind, 1916. And what is he trying to do here? Well, on the one hand, he's still a European Canadian looking at nature, but he is desperately trying. That's why people feel for this painting, because he is desperately trying to break out, to find a way out of the Western observance of place. He's trying to break out to get into the place. And the genius of the painting is the stress between still being a European looking at it, and yet wanting to break out of it and become what's hanging next to him, which is somebody who can understand that there's an animal with a long tail stirring up all this water in the real myth of the real place. And that stress of attempting to get out of the civilization which he theoretically comes from and getting into another civilization which he is part of, that stress, that tension, makes it into uh, a great... Uh, a painting, but he doesn't have the philosophy. We don't teach it. He doesn't have the language. We're in denial. We continue to be in denial. We continue in our philosophy uh, departments to teach philosophy as if it goes exactly like this, right? Athens, Rome, Rome again, Christianity. Then we whip around Europe, you know, uh, Germany, England, France, the Enlightenment, so on, so on. And then we mysteriously slip across the Atlantic into philosophy schools in Canada. And the message is very simple. You study philosophy in Canada as if nothing has happened here for 400 years. Nothing has happened here. Everything that's taught is derivative of the European philosophical tradition. There isn't even anything Asian or Islamic. Or nothing. 
It's just European-based, totally colonial. There are some wonderful professors trying to break that. But that makes it incredibly impossible to say, well, maybe we have to think about our art in a different way. How could we do that when we can't even think about our philosophy in a different way? There's an enormous need to explode our philosophy departments and reconstruct them with Aboriginal philosophy in it because that's how we've built this place. Ideas like Tsawak, West Coast Aboriginal meaning all is one, wonderful book written by Richard Atlio, the father of the recently elected national chief, Sean Atlio, or the Cree idea, Witteskewin, which is the idea that, that uh, uh, living together in the land as part of the land as opposed to above the land. Or the, the fabulous idea, which is very strong in Ontario and in Quebec, which is the idea of the great bowl and spoon. Every treaty signed in this country has within it, directly or indirectly, the concept of the great bowl. The great bowl is the place, and the idea is that we all share in it. In fact, the whole Hamilton on back, that whole very, very rich area, is called historically the long bowl and spoon because it was so rich. And the egalitarian nature of the country is all about sharing it. Or there's the Inuit idea of uh, Nunao Yugut, Silao Yugut, Imao Yugut, which is a standard Inuit uh, uh, proposal. We are the land, we are the sky, we are the water. In other words, we are in the land, we are in the water, we are in the sky, we are one and the same. That's what he's trying to do in this painting. Uh, and the air, you know, you look at, for example, uh, a negotiation like Kyoto, the great victory of Kyoto that we must defend. What is it? It's a European-style rational negotiation in which the argument is about whether we will settle for vir uh, um, comma 001 or comma 002. It's a classic linear rational administrative battle. Oh, we can't do two. We must do one. Whereas, in fact, if we thought about it in spatial terms, we'd realize that we have to move very fast in a revolutionary way. And this, in the next few weeks, very soon there'll be another big meeting in Copenhagen, and we'll make sure that there is a victory at Copenhagen. It'll be the worst thing possible, a victory at Copenhagen, because it'll be a defeat dressed up as a victory, because we'll get another comma zero zero one and it'll allow us to do virtually nothing for another 10 years, by which point it may be uh, too late. The Haida have a fantastic phrase, which is, the world is as sharp as a knife. If you don't watch out, you'll fall right off. And that's exactly where we are. That's a philosophical idea. It's a Canadian philosophical idea, which is not taught in our universities, because we're busy doing Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The story of modern Canadian painting, I think, is a struggle of the non-Aboriginal to get into the spatial idea and the Aboriginal to escape the anthropological trap that the Europeans put it into, the intellectual prison. Um, we haven't succeeded on either side. We are still in on one side and the other, Northrop Fry's uh, garrison mentality to a surprising extent. We still study as the basis of modern Canadian literature a novel called Wakusta by John Richardson, which is not only a bad novel, uh, it's actually a colonial novel, which is all about the fear of the immigrants who came to Canada, their fear of the place. It's a European interpretation of this. And the other novels, which are about living here and being here, are rigorously put to the bottom of the pile so that we won't have to act as, we act, as if we actually belong here, as if um, our explanations are not derivative, as if we're here on purpose as opposed to accidentally. 
But Edward Bertinsky is not an accidental outcome of the Western tradition. He's an intentional outcome of a very different philosophy and a very different tradition of the relationship between people and place. Now, you go around this exhibit, you know, you look at this Lauren Harris, which is not up actually at the moment, but is here, and you realize, look at this painting. I mean, the land is actually undulating. These houses are nothing. They're going to disappear. They're going to explode as this land explodes. I mean, the, the poverty and the terror of the place is expressed through the movement of uh, the land. And then you look at this by Manasseh, and uh, you see this, see this, the circularity of it, the continuation, the continuation of it, the movement. And it takes you right in, you move, turn around, and there's a reappel, which is entirely about that idea of the place and the movement of place. And you turn around, and there's a Patterson Ewan gouged out of the place. Again, that movement, that sense of the solidity and being part of it. And you turn around, and there's a William Ronald. Again, the circularity, the, we're in the place. And there's Bourgeois, who silly said, you know, that he'd completely evacuated nature from all his paintings. Well, of course, anybody just looks at that. And it's clear that it's all about place, entirely about place, which is what has made him such a genius. And then you look, you know, at, uh, uh, at the Lauren Harris, and, you know, there, look, at that, look at that claw. Look, look at the, you know, the eagle or the raven coming over. Look at the movement in that thing. Now, watch. Right? Watch. You know, everybody says, oh, Maurice, you know, Maurice, European painter. Why did Maurice spend his winters in Canada and his summers elsewhere if he was a European painter? You know, it's like, Glenn Go like um, uh, Leonard Cohen, he spends his winters in Montreal. Because he needs that kind of movement and uncertainty. There's incredible power and movement in there, which is what makes Maurice such an interesting and surprising painter. And then, of course, you have the classic example of that, which is more so in a transformation painting. And then you walk on into the salon. And there's a wall of Canadians who are not bad painting, painters, but want to be somewhere else. Sedentary, static. They're part of an idea of art as power, of the European style, surface, romantic, static, European. We're not here. We're just visiting. We're going home soon. Really? It's just an accident we're in Toronto or Montreal. No, 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 no. No, my grandfather came, but, you know, really, you know, we're very, we're so much more European than the Americans. Complete lie. The Americans are European. We're not European at all. Um, and here you have the owner of this house, which we're sitting in part of, William Henry Bolton, the Grange, 1846. I am not here, he is saying. I am somewhere else. I am in Europe, Right? <laughs> Don't mistake me. Now, this is interesting. 1846, the family compact, two years before Canada becomes a democracy, and he loses. Politically, we get it right. We invent a whole new system. But, but they, people like this, control the construction of the intellectual interpretation of Canada through their control of the seats in the universities and install an English or a French interpretation of Canada, which makes it still difficult for us to understand who we are today. This man is still alive. I think that, uh, that Gerald and his friends have done more to put a, a, a stake through the heart of this man than almost anybody in Canada. And we just need a couple more stakes, you know. And they're, of course, in Quebec, you know, again. No, no, we're not here. No, no, there's the church, the global church, which is, say, the European church, and it's all under control. Don't worry about the le pays d'en haut. 
where over 50% of the French Canadians were living with Aboriginal peoples. Don't worry, come back here to our villages where everything is stable and sedentary and so on. No, no, I'm a nice middle-class lady living in a city. There's no nature out there. There are no black flies. It's a rumor, right? Théophile Amel. And then, of course, you have a proper response to all of that from Kent Monkman in his wonderful uh, painting called The Academy, which I'm sure you've all gone and looked at. And I just it's worth just, I and mean, he may disagree totally, so I don't know whether he's here and he's going to jump up and shout at me. But, but you know, so there's uh, Kent Monkman with David. And, of course, David is fascinating because he is the revolutionary painter, right? He's for the revolution, for cutting off heads. He's a revolutionary painter. His paintings are among the most static paintings that exist. I love them. They're totally static. They're totally sedentary. Right? And so, in a way, this wonderful ironic statement that the European idea of revolution is an insider's argument about how to be static. Right? And then right next to him is sitting Morisot being devoured by his passion. So you could argue that what I suppose you could argue, and since he's not here, he can't argue back, but someone else might, that that the snakes are the European destructive influence on uh, First Nations civilization. And there they are. There's the European idea of the snakes in in their full glory. But down here on the left, you just see a head, and guess what? Um, There's Benjamin West painting turned against himself, and we're not sure who was painting the death of Wolf and who's looking at it. But above all, you'll see it. It's hard to see here. But the tattoos on his body are snakes. So here you have the proper Canadian view, which is that the snake, nature, and the people are one. They are not enemies. They are not being strangled. And then you have the final wonderful ironic comment. There's the pure European romantic schmaltz, Paul Peel. And next to him, the joke of jokes is the coyote which is to say the raven, which is to say the trickster who's pretending to be asleep and is actually making fun of them all. Right. So, to finish with two other images. This is uh, Antoine Sebastien Plamondon's The Passenger Pigeon Hunt, 1853. We are happy. We kill. We cut down trees. We dig holes and take things out of it. The tree is decor. The Saint Laurent is decor. This is a European painting. They are not in a real place. They are not in this country. And therefore, they can kill as much as they want. And as a result, there are soon no passenger pigeons. So it is a very important painting about the stupidity of attempting to apply the Western idea of civilization to this space, to this reality. And then the last image. I say, gosh, what a strange way to end it. Um, here is a, uh, a coat. Uh, Cree, Central Cree, uh, 1800s, Northern Ontario. And so why am I showing you this? It's just, it's just right next to all, it's in the same room as all of this. Well, of course, what's happening here is that this hunter is not in blue jeans. He's not wearing camouflage. Uh, he isn't going to a beer party in a shack after he's killed the moose. Uh, this hunter is dressed to the nines to kill. Why? Because this hunter believes that he has a relationship with the place and with the animal that he's going to kill. 
that this is a relationship of equals, it's a relationship of belonging, that he's going to owe the animal something by killing it. It's a completely different philosophical approach. It is a modern, postmodern, environmental approach towards sustainable development, to put it in really crappy modern language. Invented here thousands of years ago, a very modern thing that we have access to if we don't want to be signing more agreements that say comma zero zero one or comma zero zero two. And you just sort of look closely at this and you see all of this. He's dressed to kill in the right sense of the word. The understand this is the colors have, have faded and there's a circle in the middle there. But you know, many of them you know, Men going off in bright pink with flowers and birds. Now you look at the urban male today, and the urban male today will say, well, why would I dress like that? I'm a man. I wear blue jeans to go to the office and stare at a computer screen. Right? You're very uncomfortable. Um, you know, I'm an individualist. I'm wearing blue jeans. Funny, over 50% of the population wears blue jeans. Doesn't seem like a statement of individualism or masculinity or femininity. So here you have in front of you the possibility of another idea of relationship to place, which is that this hunter, and no doubt his wife and children, feel that they are part of the place. And being part of the place, that allows them to create in a very different way and to imagine in a very different way. And I think that explains the revolution which has taken place in the AGO. Thank you very much. I don't know if you're exhausted. I don't know, that was about an hour and 15 minutes or something? Yeah, yeah well, uh, there was a lot there. Um, uh, would, now, what, if, we could do five really quick things if five people want to jump up and say something, and then I'll try to make something of it quickly, and then we can stand up. Or so what leave. we're going to there's, do is there's a we're lady going to there. ask five questions. There's a lady there. Yeah. And there's and a man there. There's a man there. This is a fun way of doing it, you know, rather than having these one-on-ones to just, what is the, what is the room thinking? Yes. Thanks, that was fantastic. I just wonder if you could speak uh, to the uh, question of cultural appropriation. Absolutely. Oh, Next. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was actually, I'm, where, over, where, I'm sorry, I'm over here. I'll yeah. stand up. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to the state of our politics right now. I just, actually just came from Ottawa where uh, recently people may know there were a bunch of students who uh, really shouted out loudly and uh, you mentioned climate change and yeah. it was one of the reasons why they did, so, did that and they were frustrated with our political elites. So I was wondering if you could uh, comment on the link between the seeming inability to act on something along the lines of climate change in this country and um, the cultural slash colonial aspect of, of your argument here. Mm. And I'm also interested in how you've been received over in Europe. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, and I have an answer. <laughs> uh, that's three, four. All right. Yeah. It, it seems to me what you've been presenting to us is a whole new way of looking not only at art, but at the country and indeed of, of human life. Now, you know, revolutionary ideas can be enthusiastically received. Or, uh, or 
objected to or treated with indifference. Would you comment on the reception some of your ideas have received, like your book and this lecture, uh, in the larger community? Are people picking it up or are they uh, fighting back yeah. or how are they, how are they dealing with it? Great. Last one, anybody? We'll take two. There's a lady here and a man back there. I unfortunately got here about halfway through your lecture, but I have read the book, so it connects. Most of this actually is did the book, but no, 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 I just I want to make you feel bad. What is, be, what is behind it is in the book, and that's had a profound effect on me. The question is, outside of among the Native Canadian artists, is what you're talking about alive and well in their culture today? I hear and read the influence of the past. What is going on now, and how do they respond to what you're saying? Um, yeah, and the last person, yeah. Hi. See, isn't it fun doing it this way? It's kind of... It's, <laughs> it's a lot for you to remember. Oh, I got little uh, notes. You yes, know. I'm sure. Uh, I just, I don't want to be terribly negative, but... Uh, Aha, young last question. <laughs> 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 but the young people uh, I know aren't even out in, in uh, cafes these days. They're in front of the computer. Yeah. Um, so they couldn't be farther away from nature if they tried, and I just wonder uh, if you could comment on that, uh, the fact that uh, the next generation is even more divorced than we've been, and, and what, how are we going to bring them around? Thank you. Well, um, you know, the, uh, let me start actually with that first question about cultural appropriation. Uh, I think whatever, I might get my dates wrong, but approximately, let's say, 20 years ago, um, a lot of professors were going into First Nations communities and Inuit communities and with the best intention, you know, helping um, by writing down a lot of stories and putting them in books. Uh, what they completely missed, they were walking into communities which had been trashed for a century, uh, which had fought back and were still there, and then they were publishing these stories in books which were copyrighted. Now, did they intend to steal those stories? Probably not. They didn't understand. I don't think they really thought about it properly. So that led to the, in a way, that was the thing that in a way led, I don't know if y'all would agree with me, but that was one of the things that led to the cultural appropriation um, Argument, And I had great sympathy for the people who were saying, you know, you have to be really, really careful about this. And, um, and since I've been hanging around in First Nations and Métis and Inuit communities for about 30, 35 years, which isn't very long, but, you know, I've heard these things and, and listened to these discussions. Um, in a way, we're now in a different era because uh, even though the press continues to present a picture of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, which is unrelentingly negative and destructive. It is appalling. It's what Tayaki Alfred, the great um, uh, First Nations philosopher who's at the University of uh, Victoria, calls the politics of pity. I mean, you can't get through a day without somebody communicating to you that there is a problem on a reserve, that there was a suicide, that there was a failure. Now, these stories are true. Of course, they're also not telling you what's happening in the non-Aboriginal community at the same time. They're not doing any kind of equivalence. Uh, you know, and so um, uh, today there are 30,000 Aboriginals in post-secondary education. 30, 40 years ago there were what? A couple of hundred? 
right? Incredible breakthrough. Now, it happens that the Aboriginal population is growing like this. It's back up to one point, you know, from 2 million down to 175,000 in 1900, up to 1.3 million today. And so the growth in post-secondary education isn't keeping pace. Uh, so it can be represented, as the Globe and Mail did not long ago, as a failure. But, of course, if you look at it from the absolute point of view, it, you know, there are now about 2,000 Aboriginal lawyers. I mean, that's good or bad, but they were forced to do that by the non-Aboriginals. There are 60 Aboriginal judges. There weren't any. There are, you know, there are doctors, there are, you know, teachers, everything, right? And, we're, and when, I, when I look around at the most interesting young leadership in this country, no offense to anybody in this room, the most interesting young leadership in this country is Aboriginal. They're young, they're lean, they're angry, they're really mad as hell. They want power because they want to change things, and that's the kind of people who ought to be in charge. And they remind me very much of young Quebecers in the 1960s. Now, young Quebecers are not like that anymore because, of course, they won a whole bunch of battles. So they may think they're angry, but actually they're quite comfortable in a way. Uh, whereas young Aboriginals have that kind of muscle, which, you know, if I were asked to form a cabinet tomorrow, I'd probably be, half of it would be Aboriginal because that's where I see the kind of energy to really do things as opposed to talking about things in Canada. So... I didn't know what would happen, and it's in a way a response to the gentleman over there. I didn't know exactly what would happen. It's what I said right at the beginning when I brought out this book. I thought at best I would get silence from the Aboriginal community, but I risked being under attack. Uh, and then I would be certainly under attack from the non-Aboriginal community for betraying our European whatever, whatever, you know? And um, in fact, the exact opposite happened, which is uh, I saw a lot of people who looked awfully white an old Canadian coming up and saying, you're absolutely right, we're Métis people. You know, fabulous. I mean, to hear that they were thinking of themselves that way once they were given the language, which is the only job of a writer, is to produce the language to explain what is already there. That's what I was doing tonight. It's just language to explain what is already there. It's not me. I'm not doing anything except language that can give meaning. But the most moving and important thing for me was by about the second or third public talk I gave, I started noticing that there was quite a substantial number of First Nations, Métis, and then when I was up north, Inuit people in the audience, both elders and young people, people of power and so on. And I thought, oh boy, am I in trouble? What's going to happen here? And then, even you know, because it's not normally what happens. And then what happened was they would get up and start talking afterwards. And very often an elder would get up first and speak for five to ten minutes in Cree or Algonquin or whatever. And I'm standing there thinking, I wonder what this is, you know. And then he would explain or she would explain what it was. And they'd say that this is the right thing to be saying. And that we've been, you know, he would say, we have been saying this for years. Finally, there's a white guy saying it. You know, maybe they'll listen to you because they haven't been listening to us about the fact that we're really at the center of this civilization. That doesn't mean we want to disappear into this civilization, but we're at the center of we are the core of what this civilization is, and finally you're starting to admit it. So, but in almost every audience, somebody stood up very much, I'm not criticizing, but uh, some stood up and not asked not a clear question like yours, but stood up and asked a sort of tortured question about maybe was this appropriation. And in almost every case, an Aboriginal person stood up. I remember very clearly the first time I was in Edmonton, and uh, the vice president of the Alberta Métis, a woman, stood up and looked at this person who was a professor and said, this book is important to us 
Okay? <laughs> Get it? You know. <laughs> and so I was very honored, and uh, I, I don't feel at all that I've done anything remarkable, but I feel that I've done my job as a writer, which is to try and put arguments out there, which have always existed. If people sit down and read the Royal Commission, you know, on Aboriginal peoples, it is a fabulous document on the interpretation of Canada. It completely forces you to think about yourselves in a different way. It's long, I agree, but I mean, it is well-written, unlike most public documents, and it is fascinating, and it reinterprets everything. You Suddenly, Queen Victoria disappears. You know, England is reduced to a tertiary role, France to a tertiary role. You suddenly start to see how the country actually worked, how the Métis people were an expression of what was strongest and most interesting in the country before racism took over in the late 19th century, and what was considered to be, you know... Marrying Aboriginal for French and Scots was marrying up in pure sociological terms. You do understand that, right? That these poor Scottish kids with no education, no property, no family, no influence, get a little job with the Hudson's Bay Company in the 17th and 18th century, in the early 19th century, and they arrive from the north and they go in a boat to somewhere where they're supposed to organize trading, and they have unwritten instructions to negotiate marriages with the daughter of a chief. Why? She will make sure they are properly fed. They don't know how to feed themselves. She'll tell them where they are. They have no idea where they are. She will make sure they are properly dressed. She'll make sure they live in a proper house. And they're marrying into a commercial and military alliance. In other words, in pure European terms, this kid has just married up. That's what's happened. That's what the creation of the Métis people was all about. Same thing French Canada, all the way through. And then suddenly when the empire takes over in the late 19th century and Aboriginal population starts to drop and waves of Orange Order people arrive with anger, anger, anger against Catholics and French Canadians and, of course, Aboriginals. And these people have to get out of the way because they've got a dream of a pure white place. Pink people, you know, pure pink people speaking English for the Queen. I mean, all this nonsense. And they'll kill for it, which they did, and beat up people, which they did. And then the French Canadians respond with a right-wing movement under the Ultramontanes. And all of this kind of Europeanization of the mythology of Canada in the late 19th century, which we still haven't escaped from. We've escaped from the racism, but we haven't escaped from the assumptions that lie underneath it. That's what I'm talking about in this book. And um, suddenly, the Métis people, who were the aristocracy of Canada, are referred to as half-breeds. Now, you can always tell you're dealing with racism. It's always important to laugh at racism, because if you're not laughing at it, they've got power. So racism has a very peculiar kind of math. You take one First Nations and one white European, and you put them together, and you get half a person. One plus one makes a half. That's called racism, right? You can always tell. It's one of those little signs that racism is on uh, the rise. So... um, uh, uh, the, the, let me just see here. You know, for years, uh, Ed and I have started this institute called the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, which works with new citizens and tries to get the new citizens involved as fast as possible and so on. And um, uh, for years, you know, I've been talking about the Canadian model of immigration and citizenship. You know, 1% a year come to the country, 85% become citizens within five years. The United States is 40%. You know, in Europe, they're having a heart attack over 5%, right? 
really. And so how do we do this even when we're doing it badly? I mean, why, how do we do it? Where does it come from? And so on. And I've tried to give all these intellectual explanations coming out of my PhD European background. And you just see the European eyes roll back, and then they always end up by saying, well, you've got a big country. Really? I hadn't noticed that that was the immigration pattern, actually. You know? And then when I brought this book out, I'd actually finished a whole new argument. And not long afterwards, it was in Siena, and giving a speech about it. And so I explained, of course, that what really immigration and citizenship in Canada was, was it was the outcome of 400 years of another approach. What was that approach? Non-European, non-linear, non-rational. The Europeans came, few, poor, lost. They were adopted, there's the word, adopted into the circle of the Aboriginal people. And what, is, what does that mean? Well, the way these circles work usually is that there's some rules, uh, they're not an enormous number of rules, but there's some rules to get in the circle. And once you're in the circle, we'll work out what to do with you, and you'll work out how you're going to live there. In other words, we'll change and you'll change. Now, does that sound like Canadian immigration policy? You know? That's how we do it. Why would we in Toronto be doing something in an Aboriginal way? Because from 1600 to 1850, that's the way we did it. That's exactly how it worked. It's deep within our collective unconscious that this is how we do citizenship and immigration at our best, not at our worst. We adopt into the circle. It is a non-European approach. You can't find a single European argument to explain what we do with immigration and citizenship. So the answer is, for the first time in my life, I had a European audience listening to me on this subject because I was saying something that they actually found interesting about Canada as opposed to saying, oh, we're just like you, we're Europeans. And they thought, so boring, so second rate. They want to be imitations of us. Right? Instead, you're saying, no, no, we're not like you. We do this differently. We're not saying you could do the same thing, but there may be some things interesting in what we're doing that you might want to think about. Um, so the reception has actually been very, very interesting. I mean, you know, in practical terms, the book has been... And a, you know, a continuous bestseller. Paperback's just come out. It's gone immediately onto the bestseller list. That's a sign of something. Uh, I think I spoke in the first less than a year to about 35,000 people in halls across the country, uh, which is a lot of people. Um, and uh, the response is... Well, the other thing that's really interesting is this. You learn to listen. Artists are a bit different, but... Writers, you learn to listen to what people say to you. And if you hear in different cities the same phrase is said to you by people who don't know each other, who come from different backgrounds, then once you've heard it like five times in different places, that means you're hearing something out of the collective unconscious. It's a multiple, right? Identical phrases. These people have never met. And the two identical phrases that I just keep hearing again and again and again is, uh, I've always thought that, but I didn't know how to say it. The second phrase is, I never thought it, but I think you're right. <laughs> That's a collective unconscious also. And I just keep hearing that again from very different people. And that's what's extremely exciting. And let, let me just add that, you know, what, really in a way, the high point of it was almost the last of those lectures, uh, which was in the spring in Vancouver at the Chan Center with, I don't know, whatever it holds, 1,500 people or something. And uh, it was their mu annual B UBC multiculturalism lecture. And I was giving it on the missing conversation, which is the conversation between Aboriginal peoples and new Canadians, which is the conversation on which this country was built. Why is it missing? Because people like me get in the way. 
People who were born here sort of have occupied the middle space and we say, now we're going to talk to the Aboriginals. Hold on, now we're going to talk to the new Canadians, but never they should talk to each other. And one of the things we're hoping to do in the Institute for Canadian Citizenship is to try and work on how that conversation can be reanimated. And anyway, the reason I mention that lecture is because uh, that night I was introduced by Sean Atlio, who was then the senior, uh, both the senior elected chief of British Columbia, uh, who's a something like 25th hereditary chief in uh, one of the nations on the West Coast. We had dinner the night before. And uh, I thought, gosh, this is really something. It's a whole new generation of First Nations leaders coming along. Really amazing. And then he's now, you know, the national chief. Very interesting young man. But to stand in the Chan Center and see the front row occupied by elders and the next row occupied by chiefs, and then behind this mix of Vancouver of the old and the new Canadians was one of the most moving experiences of my life, I have to say. And, uh, t- and to be introduced by Sean Atleo was quite overwhelming. Frank, I almost wanted to say, now that you've introduced me, can I go home? You know, that's enough. But, um, so I think I, I think I pretty well... Uh... Oh, yes, the young artists. I, well, first of all, the, the, the young artists and, and young... Yes, there are a lot of people sitting in front of computers, and yes, they'll probably die of some horrible disease, but um, uh, because they really aren't getting outside enough. Um, but actually, I don't think it works that way. I think that uh, um, there are other forces at work, and you know, just because you're living in Toronto, you don't actually escape the place. The collective unconscious is stronger than the job market, uh, and in fact, people rebel against it. They rebel against the way they're obliged to live their lives. And we're seeing many, many signs of that already. Of, you know, eating patterns, travel patterns, what people are rejecting are signs that they feel that there's something else. The fact that the environmental movement's roots, the international environmental movement's roots, are largely Canadian, more strong, Greenpeace, and so on and so on, simply makes it increasingly embarrassing that our governments do nothing. Because actually the Canadian people don't think that way. That is not the real... Uh, response of the Canadian people. So I think it's there and I actually think that new Canadians have a very high level of curiosity about what lies outside of the cities in which people expect them to stay. There's a kind of assumption, oh well they've got to work hard for a couple of generations before they go out into that world out there, which is complete garbage. You know, the sooner the new Canadians get outside of the cities and take control of their lives and their place in the country, the better. And they're doing that. It's not happening fast enough because there are these real barriers that it's not taught at schools properly and it's not presented properly and it's not suggested it's theirs. But I can tell you that every time Adrian and I speak at citizenship ceremonies, one of the first things we say is, you know, you're going to be working enormously hard, but it is not expensive to get out of this city. Any second you have, leave the city and go and see what's out there because what's out there belongs to you. You're responsible for it. If you don't go out there, you won't know it. And when they go out there, they love it. And they take possession in their own way. And I think it'll be very good and very uh, energizing for the country. And I think it'll be very supportive of Aboriginal peoples. And um, I think that when I look at the art and the new art in this country, and, uh, you know, uh, both Ada and I have a disease of purchasing art, um, uh, it seems to me that all of this is very much alive in what's going on the walls. That's, I gave the example of the wonderful film upstairs of the, uh, of the trees coming up. It's a really astonishing piece that you should go and look at. And uh, I see it all over the place, frankly. I think there's, an, there's great energy in the creative community 
the visual creative community in this country, and I think it's very much in this tradition. And I mean, it's even you know people like Max Dean. I mean, he's not a child, Max Dean, but I mean, you know, he's that that irony of Max Dean is very much like the irony of of Kent Monkman. You know, they're in the same school, so you know you. Aaron knows what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, you've seen it through, you know. Uh, it, it, it's there, it's very strong, it's very exciting, and that's why it's possible to have an art gallery like this. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd just like to thank you so much for such a, a wonderful, fresh, and invigorating view of the Canadian art. I was really enjoying your snake symbolism, and as you were talking, I was thinking about you were talking about African art, and the Yoruba have various ideas of the symbolism of snake. One is that it can shed its skin, so therefore it symbolizes rebirth. So I love that front ramp now, thinking about the rebirth of the AGO. It can form itself into a circle, so that means continuity. So we've, we've taken the old, we've done something new with it, but we're not forgetting our history. And it can go above and, and below ground, so it's communicating with the ancestors. And now we're going back, honoring 11,000 years of ancestors. So I was really enjoying that. Thank you very much.